Good morning. That's better. Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning of the service. Um, We especially want to welcome family and friends of the Ritters, and uh, Rowena, and Frank, and James, and Ben. It's good to see you again. This morning, we are continuing and actually concluding our series in the book of Daniel. We've spent the past two months following Daniel and his friends as they navigated the challenges of life in exile in Babylon, and today we get a taste of the apocalyptic. So that's a word that doesn't come up every day. But when I say apocalyptic or apocalypse, what comes to mind for you? Just shout out a word association. What? Revelation. Revelation. End times. Zombies, thank you. (laughs) I was hoping that would come up. (laughs) Anything else? I say apocalypse, you think of? Chaos. Chaos. Mel Gibson, (laughs) okay. Um, So we have these various associations with the word apocalypse or apocalyptic, and um, we actually, the first response that we heard gets at the biblical meaning of this word. In our popular culture, we might think of movies, we might think of zombies, we might think of you know, climate disaster. These are all things that weigh on us uh, in terms of a coming apocalypse, the end of the world. But in the Bible, apocalypse means something way less dramatic. It simply means revelation, uncovering something that was hidden or disclosing the meaning of a mystery. We saw Daniel do that for kings in the first part of this book. He revealed mysteries, he interpreted dreams or the writing on a wall. But the final six chapters of the book of Daniel are different from the first six. They're full of strange and dramatic visions. They're actually pretty alarming, but we're going to see that they also offer us an unprecedented hope. And as we've heard, this is the first Sunday of Advent. We have lit the candle of hope. So a vision of hope is just right for today as we start our journey towards Bethlehem and the coming of an ultimate hope in Jesus Christ. And, and each Sunday through Advent, we'll be tracking with the theme of the candle we'll be lighting as part of the Advent wreath. So today it's hope. And next Sunday, it will be peace, then joy, then love, and then Christmas Eve. So let's pray before we read Daniel chapter 7. Holy Spirit, would you come among us and give us a quietness in our hearts, give us a calm that is receptive to your word, We're all coming from different circumstances today, and some of us come with troubled spirits. I pray that that you would speak your truth and your peace to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're reading Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, 
Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had, the four wing, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns." While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And here the scene shifts. As I looked, thrones were set in place. So imagine a heavenly council. Imagine... Chairs being pull up, pulled up, and, and Daniel says, The Ancient of Days took his, his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, which literally means a human being. One like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. 
I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. I watched this horn was waging, as I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time, which if you have your Bible open is two and a half years roughly. There's a footnote there. But the court, this heavenly council, will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale but I kept the matter to myself. This is the word of the Lord. So it's a long reading, and it is a dramatic reading. It's complicated. It's hard to understand. I met with someone recently who said that they, through this series, as we worked our way through the first half and a little more of the book of Daniel over the past couple of months, they said they had never heard sermons from the book of Daniel that managed to resist the temptation to focus on the prophetic as consistently as this series has done. Well, today we're going to blow our cover. Let me be clear that this person's comment was positive, but it got me thinking. Um, it got me thinking about how we do take the prophetic seriously. Now, some Christians you may know, depending on your background, are really into the prophetic parts of the Bible, including Daniel and Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, while others are not. What I've come to realize is that we need each other. And I like to think at Courtright we have a pretty good balance. I grew up in a Presbyterian household not hearing much about the relevance of prophetic literature in the Bible, not hearing that it was relevant to what was going on in the world. But I came to see that I needed my worldview expanded. And when I became a Christian in my early 20s, I began to develop a bigger picture framework for what was going on in the world, in terms of politics, in terms of the rise and fall of empires. The Swiss, Swiss theologian Karl Barth once said, or is reported to have said, take your Bible and take your newspaper and read them both, but interpret the newspaper from your Bible. We need the prophetic and apocalyptic parts of the Bible to give us insight into the meaning of world history and our individual place in it and the place of the church. 
At the same time, the prophetic can become too much of a focus when we insist on figuring it all out, naming everything, and when it will happen. And if we let that distract us from fixing our gaze on Christ in the here and now. You might recall what Jesus said to the disciples right before he left them and was taken up into heaven. They asked him, eagerly, they asked him if he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel and free them from Roman rule. And he replied, it is not for you to know the times and dates when, that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. The future is still a mystery, and I believe God wants us to trust him with it, to give it over to him, to not try to control it or figure it all out, and that as we do that, he will provide the hope we need to live fully and faithfully in the present, even in circumstances that resemble exile. So in Daniel 7, we come to understand the prophetic in terms of three things. First of all, the pattern and the peril of worldly power. Secondly, the promise of God's rescue and redemption. And third, we're invited into the practice of a new vision of the Christian life. So pattern, promise, and practice with exclamation marks, just to keep you interested. First, the pattern of worldly power. Daniel has a dream, and it takes place during the first year of Belshazzar's reign. So we're actually going back about 12 years in time from what we read last week, from Darius and the episode with the lion's den. There's a great sea in Daniel's dream, which could be the Mediterranean, or more likely, it's a reference to what the sea represented in the ancient world, which was chaos and danger. Fragile, life was so fragile, and the sea was a threat to that. So these four beasts come up out of the sea, out of the chaos, and they're all pictures of violence. First, there's a beast like a lion with the wings of an eagle. Second, there's a creature that resembles a great bear. <clears throat> Third, there's something like a leopard with four wings and four heads. And finally, there's a terrifying super beast with iron teeth and ten horns. And there's one freaky horn that has eyes and a boastful mouth. And we hear repeatedly through this chapter how troubled Daniel is. He's disturbed. And as that's repeated, you get a sense of the peril, the threat, the evil at work here. You can think of the scariest horror movie imaginable, and multiply it by 10,000 times. Daniel approaches someone standing there. In his dream, he seeks an interpretation. Likely, it was an angel, and he asks the angel what it all means, and he's told that the beasts are kingdoms or empires. And when he asks about the super beast, I mean, he's just like us. He wants to know what this means, what this is. He hears that it's a really powerful empire, and it's different from the rest because it will devour the whole earth. We want to know what this means, too, for our time, for our lives. Most interpreters take their cue from Nebuchadnezzar's dream about a statue in chapter 2 of Daniel. We've seen that before. And they understand the first beast of Daniel's dream here to be the Babylonian Empire. The second beast is commonly interpreted as being 
the Persian Empire, the third beast as the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great, and the super beast with all the horns as the Roman Empire. But this prophecy isn't as settled as all that. For one thing, the Apostle Paul takes Daniel's dream and uses his imagery to inform a whole new apocalyptic vision of the future. But that comes after most of these empires have faded from the scene, are long gone. It is hard to pin prophecy down, and it's wise to not try too hard to do so. You can think of it this way. If you've ever hiked in the mountains, we unfortunately don't have too many of them in southern Ontario, but if you've ever been in British Columbia or elsewhere where there are amazing mountains, you know that the view can be deceiving. So you look out and you see a series of peaks, maybe snow-capped peaks, in the distance, and they look like they're close together. They look like if you were at the top of one of them, you could jump to the next one. But once you get closer, once you get the right angle, you realize that each peak is actually really far away from the next one. And so the beasts in Daniel 7 here may refer to the empires of that era, which would have been up close, or they may refer to more recent empires and antichrists, from Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, and Ivan the Terrible, to Hitler, Stalin, and Kim Jong-un of North Korea. We cannot pin these things down. They're meant to be fluid and flexible, but we see that it always calls out and challenges the pattern, the prophetic in the Bible. God's word, God's prophecy, disrupts, stands in judgment over the pattern that these rulers and kingdoms represent, where they boast of their own power and refuse to acknowledge God or to act with any humility. And the end result is untold suffering and violence. And this pattern isn't just about global politics, world history, and empires. It's personal. It's for us, too. The super beast referred to here in Daniel 7 may or may not be Rome, but the Roman Empire still stands as perhaps the greatest example of worldly power in human history. Thank you, Lily. I mean, it still features so prominently in our movies and our TV shows. There's a reason for that. And one particular practice of the Romans is worth pondering, I think. When, when a Roman general returned home victorious from, from a military campaign and the Romans conquered the whole known world at that time, there would be a day of feasting in Rome. The whole day and the whole city was given over to celebrating. A triumph, it was called. And the army would parade through the city showing off the spoils of war throughout the celebration of the triumph. But it was also their custom to do something that might surprise you, to keep the pride of the general in question in check. They used the practice of what they called memento mori. As he rode his chariot along the great avenues of Rome with his army behind him, a slave would stand immediately to one side, just over the shoulder of this victorious general, and whisper two Latin words to him, memento mori, which means, remember, you will die. 
pagans, atheists, Christians, we all see it coming, right? We all know that death is not far away. But here's the difference. The pagan or the atheist knows that life is short and either denies the inevitability of death or is driven to seize the day and to live life to the fullest in a kind of desperation. But the Christian has a bigger picture, a broader context, and a shining hope at the heart of it that overturns the desperate pattern of this world. On Wednesday, I spoke on the phone with Leandro Bastos while he was at the hospital waiting for Elysia's surgery to end. Many of you know the story of Elysia and Leandro. We have walked with them this past year through great difficulty. They came to us from Brazil and settled down in Guelph after some time in Toronto. We rejoiced with them when Louise was born a year and a half ago, and we wept with them six months later when doctors discovered a tumor on Leisha's spine that seemed impossible to remove without huge risk of the loss of her life or of the use of her legs. After I talked to Leandra on Wednesday, I sat down and wrote a prayer for Leisha, and I think the Holy Spirit led me to Psalm 139. Leandro had been talking on the phone about the risk of an infection with Leisha's internal body parts, like her spine, imagine that, open to the surgeons for such a long period, almost two days, the surgery took. There is no psalm in the Bible like Psalm 139 for reminding us that we are more than the scientific sum of our body parts. No, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, as the King James Version puts it. God knit us together in our mother's womb. Today we have x-rays and MRIs and what a gift they are, what a gift modern medicine is to us, but they give us a vision of the human body that comes in black and white. When you step back and when you let Psalm 139 give you a larger framework for understanding who you are, where you come from, your body and soul, the vision explodes into iridescent technicolor. Psalm 139 proclaims that God is alpha and omega of your body, of your future, the beginning and the end of who you are, that God watched as you were woven together in the dark of the womb, and that every day of your life is recorded in his book. He knows every moment you will ever experience. And even that your body, your spirit, your life itself is held together by God's perception of you, his thoughts about you. Amazing. We tend to assume it's the human default position that we are at the center of the universe. But we're not. God frees us invites us to embrace the freedom from that pattern of human pride and self-centeredness and then gives us an unshakable hope for the future. I've seen that hope in Leisha and Leandra as they have spoken in recent months about how they are prepared to accept God's will and wanting whatever happens in life or death to be for God's glory. And praise the Lord, he answered 
He's answered our prayers for Lisia, not only sparing her life, but it looks good that her spine is intact and that she will walk again. You can say something. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So we rejoice with them and we're humbled once again by God's reality, not just by the memento mori, the reality that life is short and death is not far from any one of us, but that God gives us a hope through that. Daniel 7 gives us a vision of world history with the promise of God's kingdom coming into the world and putting things right. The promise of love come down overthrows the pattern of violence and conflict we see all around us and in which all of us are complicit. So we move from this pattern that holds us back to a promise that leads us into God's future. In verse 9, we watch as the Ancient of Days, God himself takes a seat in the heavenly council. God is ready to intervene. And there's fire everywhere in what we read about here because fire signifies God's presence. You think of the burning bush, Mount Sinai, the pillar of fire in the wilderness, the Holy Spirit flames at Pentecost. And the river of fire that flows out of this bizarre throne on fiery wheels is God's coming judgment on human evil and sin. And then just like that, with no great fanfare, the super beast is destroyed. And in verse 13, Daniel sees one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Son of man literally means human being. It's as simple as that. And so we had all these crazy, scary beasts and God, the ancient of days. And then you've got just a guy, a regular looking guy who shows up. Okay, he shows up on the clouds of heaven, so there's that too. And that actually is pretty significant because elsewhere in the Bible, only Yahweh, only God himself ever comes on clouds like that. So you have these two things combined. You have a regular person who shows up in the midst of all this crazy, prophetic, apocalyptic dream stuff. And then he shows up just like God does. And he's given authority, glory, and power over the whole world. And his kingdom will not pass away, not ever. In the New Testament, Jesus takes his cue from this chapter of Daniel. Most of all, Jesus refers to himself in the Gospels as the Son of Man, more than he calls himself Messiah or Savior or Son of God. Eighty times in the Gospels, Jesus uses those words to describe himself. He is the Son of Man. As he does that, he's making it clear that Daniel didn't just see anyone in his vision. He saw Christ. Jesus is both human and God. And he's the one. He's the promise of rescue, of restoration, of redemption. In Matthew 26, when Jesus is on trial soon to be crucified, he refers, he quotes from Daniel 7, verse 13. He says, In the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He was saying that he's just like the Father, who would exalt him and give him the eternal kingdom. And what did they do? They killed him for it. He had been given all power and authority, but he, did, he laid down his life at the cross. 
He broke this pattern of violence and fulfilled the promise of peace. And with his resurrection, Jesus becomes the center of human history and the hope for all the nations, as well as the hope for each one of us in whatever trouble we're going through, in our brokenness, in our suffering. He promises that it will be put right. One theologian puts it like this. Jesus has opened up a hole in these last days of our present history through which the Spirit descends, dispensing the spoils of Christ's victory. And so there is now present, even in this passing evil age, a new order at work. I love this. A new order at work, an underground resistance to the principalities and powers of sin and death. Though we are still living in this present evil age, the powers of the age to come are breaking in upon us in the Spirit through preaching and sacrament. Because Jesus is Lord, we are made alive by the Spirit, drawn away from our alliance with death and made co-sufferers as well as co-heirs with Christ, who promises to be with the church in its struggles and guarantees that one day it will share fully in the triumph of its King. When I first read that, it took my breath away. Such a recognition of the pain and the brokenness we experience individually in the church, but also such a promise of hope. How do we sum up the mystery of our faith whenever we celebrate communion? We say, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That is the vision of Daniel 7. And that is the promise of ultimate hope it holds out to us. So we've seen a pattern, a pattern we'd like to leave behind, We've received a promise. How do we practice this? This vision Daniel has, this dream, is designed to prompt us to action, just as much as the stories of Daniel and his friends were earlier in this book. We're called to be this new order at work, an underground resistance to the principalities and powers of sin and death. And we are going to spend the rest of Advent seeing how that plays out. We're leaping off from this crazy apocalyptic vision today of hope into the story of the coming and the birth of Jesus. But for now, let me suggest three practices that can nurture the hope of Jesus as we experience our own kind of exile. First... Start every day with the colorful vision of God's big picture that the Bible gives us. Eugene Peterson puts it like this, who are we? We are Christians, that is who we are. We encourage one another in the strenuous life that nurtures and protects a healthy freedom in faith so that we're not deceived by the surface appearance of sanity in the madhouse of the world. Behind each and every ordinary day that we have to drag our sorry selves out of bed to work or wherever we need to be, maybe it's just the kitchen. Behind that surface appearance, there is another whole horizon, a breathtaking, beautiful vista of God's providence and purposes. You can catch that vision, and I would say you can only catch that vision by reading Scripture. And in particular, you can do it by reading your way through the Psalms. There are 150 of them. 
Christian spirituality over the centuries has been nurtured by the monastic practice of reading through the Psalms daily. We can do it too. Start with the first one tomorrow morning. Or use an app like Lectio 365 or a daily guide to reading the Bible like Scripture Union Notes. Your imagination and your faith will starve without a daily diet of God's Word. Second, practice Sabbath. For some of us, the most important thing you could do this afternoon would be nothing. To simply stop. That's what Sabbath means. It's this kind of esoteric, strange word to us. But it means stop, cease, desist. Stop working, stop worrying. Turn off the screens in your life. Go for a walk, read a book, call an old friend, light a candle, reach out to someone in need, make them a casserole, or if you can't do that, buy them one from Costco. If you're going to hear God's still small voice and receive his encouragement, you will need to cultivate stillness in your own life. The third practice is to learn from Daniel and his friends. Do you want the peace that can come from resting in God? Do you want the joy of your salvation restored? You're not likely to find it on your own. Daniel kept his faith and received God's wisdom, at least partly through the practice of community. Those four friends encouraged each other, prayed for each other, supported each other, and enjoyed delicious vegetarian meals together. Earlier in this series, I made a disparaging remark, a joke about vegetarians. And I hope I just made it up to you if you're a vegetarian. (laughs) Daniel and his friends envisioned life together in Babylon. Where to draw a line, what to embrace, what they had to say no to, to be faithful to God. Yes, it's harder to be together to practice community during a pandemic, but we've seen it over and over again in our congregation this past year. Where two or three are gathered, Jesus promises to be with us, even if we're only online. If that's something you're looking for, or maybe you're not even looking for it yet, but you're aware of its importance, Allison can tell you about some new small groups that we're starting at Courtright this month. It always begins with prayer. It always begins with acknowledging our need by asking God for help, for a new revelation a new apocalyptic in our lives, his breaking into our ordinary struggles with a renewed vision of hope in Jesus Christ. So let's do that right now. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so often short-sighted. We trudge through the days and weeks with our heads down looking at what's right in front of us, not expecting much, preoccupied with ourselves. Would you shine your light into that fog? Would you exceed our expectations? Lord Jesus, we want more of you. Open our eyes to your reality. Light up the horizon. May your kingdom come, your will be done among us in your church and in Guelph as it is in heaven. Amen.